Lord, Lord, be with us as we reflect on your word now. Spirit of the living God, would you open this word that might be familiar to many, but don't let us be vaccinated to it. I pray that it would do its good work in our hearts and transform us as your people. Amen. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble because they will inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. Flourishing, flourishing are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers because they shall be called the sons and daughters of the living God. And flourishing are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These eight statements or beatitudes frame the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And over the summer, we're going to be taking these eight beatitudes one at a time and expounding them and looking at them. Uh, And so far in the series, we've covered the first two of the beatitudes. Whether or not you've been following along in the series or you're just joining us for the first time, I want to emphasize something above all other things, and that is this, that whatever else it is, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in that sermon, whatever else it is, it is fundamentally good news. They are intended to be good news, these Beatitudes. Now, Sermon on the Mount, all of the teachings, the Beatitudes, are they challenging? (laughs) Yeah. Are they countercultural? Absolutely. Uh, Are they impossible to emulate without the power of God? 100%. But however we interpret them and however we try to apply them, our guiding lens through which we read them must be good news. So if you're familiar with the Beatitudes, you've likely read them uh, something like this, uh, beginning with the word blessed. So the first Beatitude would, be, would read probably in the translation you have, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a fine translation, but I'm not sure it's entirely the most helpful translation. And here's the problem. The word blessed usually has to do with a reward for something, some kind of action. In fact, most of the time in the Bible, when we run across that word blessed, it's in reference to God himself. And so the idea that a lot of times in scripture, when we talk about God, we bless him because of his glory or his grace or his love or his faithfulness uh, or the beauty of his creation or for air conditioning. Bless you, Lord, we appreciate that. Uh, God is the recipient of blessing. He is blessed because of his actions and we just appreciate it. And so you see the psalmist and, and David and many others in the scriptures saying, blessed be God for X, Y, and Z. But that's not the term that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5, when we, when we have blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn. That word is this Greek term, makarios. 
And Makarios has this rich history in translating Hebrew words, and it's a Greek term, and Jesus has both of those meanings in mind. And what Makarios at its core has to do with is declaring value on a recipient for who they are, not for what they've done necessarily. So you are blessed if you do X, Y, or Z, but if I declare Makarios on you, it's just a value for who you are. Jesus is, is not saying, good work, you poor in spirit, great job, or pat yourself on the back, you meek and humble on the world, you just really did a great job and so now you're blessed. Jesus is not saying, you've done something good and now I'm going to bless you because of it. No, what Jesus is saying is, to this crowd who's gathered at the end of Matthew 4, he's saying, you know, you don't think that you matter very much in the world, do you? You've been told that you have no claim on God because you're not holy enough, but you're here, and you're open to following me, and you're open to following me with the nothing that you think you have, and guess what? I declare you, Makarios, flourishing. Flourishing. Flourishing not because you're poor in spirit. I, I, I don't want you to feel bad, but flourishing because when you cling to me alone, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So rejoice. You're flourishing not because you're mourning and grieving. I, I don't want you to be sad forever is the line of logic that Jesus is having here. I declare you flourishing because when you cry out to me, I will comfort you and yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you're not quite tracking with me, let me just quote one of my favorite Matthew scholars, Dale Bruner, who says things really well, and so I might as well quote him. Uh, he says, these beatitudes do not, first of all, describe people with good spiritualities so much as they describe people in bad situations, okay? First and literally, the beatitudes are Jesus' surprisingly countercultural God bless yous to people in awful situations. This evening, we're gonna focus on the third beatitude, found in Matthew 5, 5, which declares flourishing are the humble, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You'll probably notice right away that there's a trend with these first three beatitudes. They announce the verdict of flourishing on a group of people who seem to be the opposite of what we would define flourishing as, right? Uh, in other words, Jesus declares flourishing on a group of folks that the world would say are complete losers. The world's beatitudes, to look at this conversely, in our culture, right, if our culture had beatitudes on a list somewhere, they might say something like, flourishing are the busy because they think that they have a life. Flourishing are the self-confident because they think they have what it takes. Flourishing are the famous because they believe they have worth. Flourishing are the wealthy because they think they can buy happiness and security. Flourishing are the agnostics because they think they'll find freedom without any commitments. And flourishing are the aggressive or Pacific Northwest, passive-aggressive, for theirs 
is the kingdom of cutthroats and the crafty. And the hardest thing for most of us to grasp is this upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven. You know, a fish, well, I don't know that fish really think at all, but let's pretend they did. I don't think fish very often think about the water that they're swimming in, unless it's like really gross. Um, Just as rarely do you and I, we hardly ever think of the air we breathe until forest fire season and it really bothers us, right? So you and I are swimming and breathing in the cultural currents that are informing us who is successful, who is not successful, who is flourishing, and who is a loser. And we're swimming on those currents, and if we, we don't think critically about it, we're just going with the flow, believing what we're told and what's put out in front of us. And what we see in these Beatitudes then and in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is inviting us to question the very air we breathe and the very water that we're swimming in. He's asking us to question the cultural currents that we're a part of. The poor in spirit, then, those who feel like they have no moral claim on God, those who mourn, those who are stuck with grief and sadness over things that have happened to them, over things that they've done and now bear the shame of those things, over the broken state of the world. And now he's declaring flourishing on the meek, on the humble, on people that the world might say are the doormats of society. How can this be? How can the humble, the meek, be declared flourishing in our world? How can the humble and the meek inherit the earth? Don't they know it's a seller's market right now in Bellingham? You've got to be aggressive and crafty. If you've ever had the displeasure of recently trying to purchase a home in this market or just even a piece of land, you'll know that it rarely pays to be meek and humble. The market is set up so that it appears you need to be aggressive and crafty and well-connected in order to even get a sale. So what is Jesus saying when he says, flourishing are the humble, the meek, for they will inherit the whole earth, let alone a piece of land in Bellingham? What is he saying? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to look a little bit closer at two concepts. Humility, humility, and the concept of inheriting the earth. So let's begin with the word humble. In Greek, it's this word preis, and it can mean humble, meek. Often translated gentle in the New Testament, and my favorite, not being overly impressed with one's sense of importance. (laughs) Humility is a virtue, but first and foremost, in the context of the Beatitudes, it is the state of people who have been humiliated. That's very different than trying to, like, be a humble person. Uh, It's a very different thing when you've been humiliated, pushed down, Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are largely cast out of mainstream Judaism. Some were sick and diseased. Some were mentally ill. Most were outside of the mainstream of what was considered a successful, blessed life. And they believed that they were probably out of favor with God because of the humility of their life station. And this leads us to the second concept, inheriting the earth. The earth, 
the land itself has been an essential element to human flourishing in every culture, in every time in human history. The land, the earth itself gives us what we need. It produces our food. It, it, its features, its geography create weather systems and those, the, the way our weather is and our climate determines our culture uh, of what we typically eat as our normal diet. Um, it, it shapes the way we think as pockets of people all around the world. We are who we are in relation to place. Uh, uh, besides all of that, it gives us an identity. And, that, and that's why right now our denomination is uh, moving forward with repudiating the doctrine of discovery in a very formal way. Um, the doctrine of discovery legalized and then spiritualized. Like I said, it was a mandate of God uh, to take the land of, by violence from the indigenous residents of the Americas. As if violence and genocide were not enough, Taking of ancestral lands is a taking of identity, a taking of someone's rootedness and way of life, just robbing them of that. And see, in Scripture, the land, the earth, is promised to those who follow God, who trust Him. And the promises of God in the prophet Isaiah and in the Psalms, and in the Torah, and in Jesus and Paul, the promise is that on the last day, on the day of the Lord, and the day when the future kingdom of God comes in fullness in crashing into our time and space, on that day, the wicked will be judged and those who have placed their faith in Jesus will be inheritors of this new creation. And just a side note, because I'll always point this out when it's in the scripture, uh, notice where the new creation is. This new kingdom of God, it's not up in the sky or not up in heaven or in some spiritual realm. It is right here on earth. So Jesus is looking out upon this crowd of people who are poor in spirit, who are mourning, who have been humiliated, and feel like they must have no stake in the world, let alone, you know, landowners and having a stake in, in the promise of God. In almost every age, most of the land has been claimed by the relatively few. And in the case of Jesus' hearers, even their own homeland was literally occupied by the Roman Empire. Would justice ever come for these people? And Jesus says, you are flourishing. You will inherit the earth. This idea of the meek, the humble, the gentle, inheriting the earth is explicitly outlined in Psalm 37, the same text that you heard Joan read just a moment ago. And Psalm 37 is written in response to the question, is all of this following God stuff worth it? Is it worth it to trust God and to be faithful when it seems like the wicked are winning like all the time? And it seems like the aggressive people and the tyrants, they are the ones who have a leg up on everybody else. Is it worth it to wait on the Lord? Is it worth it to be righteous? Is it worth it to love my neighbor as myself? And the consensus of the psalm is yes. Yes, it's worth it. The wicked will not stand, but they're going to be brought low. And the humble now will be lifted up and will inherit the world. 
So in one sense, this is a future promise. Jesus is looking out at the poor in spirit and those who are mourning and in grief and those who have been humbled. And he is saying, you're flourishing because you're with me and you will inherit the earth. This is all gonna be yours. You're part of my kingdom, okay? But there's more to it than that, thank God, because as much as I like a good future, I kind of like being alive now and would love to have some hope right now. Would you like hope right now? Yeah, I mean, we all need that. Uh, So part of the reason that the Beatitudes are good news is because of the love of Jesus and the kingdom of God and the very comfort of God, the very earth, they are accessible to everyone. They are gifts from God, not things to be taken by the rich and the powerful and the secure and the aggressive. And and I guess the good news is that it's all grace. And the the starting point is that you can begin to follow Jesus, whatever your state in life, and then it gets deeper and richer and better. And, And as we follow Jesus, we begin to take on his character. I don't know about you, but when I read the gospel accounts of Jesus... Like, who is this man? He's so strong and gentle. He's, he's like everything I want to be. And, and as we follow him, he begins to pour in his character in us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to recognize that we are poor in spirit even when we're doing quite well in the world. And we begin to mourn over the state of the world when it's out of sync with God's kingdom. And so even though if, if you have relative uh, wealth and you've got a good family system and a nice friendship circle and you can sort of insulate yourself from all the things going on in the world, when Jesus gets in you, you begin to mourn over the state of things when other people are not flourishing. It's a very Christ-like way to be. And, and we, we begin to grow as well in humility, in gentleness, in not being overly impressed with ourselves. Now, why would humility be a character trait uh, that we develop when we follow Jesus? I mean, after all, isn't Jesus the God of the universe in human flesh? Like, isn't he our creator? Isn't he our king? Well, yeah, he's all that stuff, and he's also humble. He's the God who becomes vulnerable as a baby and as a human being. He's the king who washes people's dirty feet. He's the son of God who hands his own life over in crucifixion for the sake of the world. He is the teacher who's gentle with others and patient with the students. Jesus defines healthy humility. No one walks on him, and yet he gives himself for the sake of others. In Psalm 37, we learn that the humble are not weak. They're not the doormats of society. Humility takes great strength and resolve. It takes strength to wait on the Lord for justice when there are very satisfying shortcuts of violence, of playing the game, of trying to one-up other people, of just jumping wholeheartedly into the way of the world and trying to win at that game. It takes guts to be gentle and charitable, especially in the face of insults. It takes a strong sense of one's identity as God's beloved to resist trying to grab for our rights when everyone says, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. 
But most of all, true humility is recognizing that no matter how privileged or strong or powerful we might think we are, we are all dependent beings. Dependent beings. Uh, Humility requires an honest assessment of oneself before God. So I'm gonna say some statements here that are all true. We are glorious as the moon is to the sun, right? We are amazingly complex and wonderfully made as the pot is to the potter or the computer is to the computer engineer. We are full of life and the ability to replicate life as the branches to the tree. We are amazing and we are amazingly dependent on God. And humility is being honest with both of those realities and recognizing that the people sitting around you and every person you will ever meet is in the exact same boat. And that means that they are worthy of our utmost respect and not worthy of worship. And that is a very hard line to walk because we're tempted to do both, to, to bring people down or to put people on pedestals. So maybe you're hearing this message today and you are feeling humbled, like you came in feeling beat down by the world, humbled maybe by the shame of your own choices. Maybe you feel like you're on the outside looking in, and I have good news for you today. I don't have good news. Jesus does. I'm just going to parrot him. He says, flourishing, flourishing are you. Flourishing are you, for you will inherit the earth. Maybe you're here and you have the self-awareness to see your own privileged position. Maybe Jesus is giving you eyes to see that you are living as though you are entitled to a certain level of life and to the good life at that. We'll receive the, the good news because Jesus can cause you to flourish as well. He can make you humble. If you lack humility, oh man, He causes you to come into contact with your own humility of spirit. And Jesus declares you flourishing because the kingdom of heaven is available to the poor in spirit. Amen? That's such good news. And if you're like me, you're probably a healthy mixture of both of those things. Feeling humbled in some parts of your life and maybe a little too full of yourself and others and needing a reality check. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for this good news today that says there is hope even for me and even for us. Not just barely hope, not just squeaking by hope, but flourishing hope and the promise of inheritance, a part of the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hope for all of us. Amen.